Welcome to The Path and the Practice, a podcast dedicated to sharing the professional origin stories of the attorneys at Foley & Lardner LLP, a full-service law firm with over 1,000 lawyers across the U.S. and abroad. I'm your host, Alexis Robertson, Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Foley. In each episode of this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with a different Foley attorney. You'll learn about each guest's unique background, path to law school, and path to Foley & Lardner. Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Michael Wall. Michael is of counsel in Foley's Boston office, where he's a member of the firm's transactions group, as well as Foley's sports and entertainment industry team. In this discussion, Michael reflects on growing up in Lynn, Massachusetts, and attending the College of Holy Cross for undergrad and Boston College for law school. Michael's journey is a bit unique in that you'll soon hear how Michael has spent the bulk of his career actually in-house as general counsel for a few very large organizations. But before we talk about those, I do get Michael to reflect on his path to law, his experience in law school, and in particular, how it is that he found his first job with a law firm or law firms out of college. So before going in-house, Michael spent six years practicing in firms, and then he was able to transition into the roles of chief legal officer for the Boston Bruins and TD Garden, serving those organizations for over a dozen years before joining Bauer Hockey, where he served as that organization's general counsel and corporate secretary for nearly a decade before joining Foley. So we talk a lot about this. And one of the highlights for me of this conversation is you really get the client perspective because Michael spent over 20 years as a general counsel. But I also get him to talk about how it is that one breaks into the sports and entertainment industry, which I'm guessing many of you law students listening would like to know, as well as just his feedback on a long career. Another thing I love about this conversation is you get to see the ups and downs. You get to hear about the hustle he exhibited, literally handing out resumes to find his first job with a law firm. Also the opportunities and that preparation plus opportunity combining for him to step into the roles at the Bruins, TD Garden, and at Bauer. But also how, you know, once you get in-house, even if it's a fantastic role, you sort of never know where life will take you. And he does share how ultimately Bauer went through a restructuring, which is what caused him to want to leave that organization or need to leave that organization and subsequently join Foley and Lardner. I, of course, get Michael to talk about his time at Foley, his day-to-day practice, and you also get a real sense of the depth and breadth of Foley's sports and entertainment industry team. And then, like so many episodes of The Path and the Practice, I get him to conclude the show with some advice. And in particular, Michael focuses on the importance of finding a practice you truly enjoy and being civil because you never know who you're going to work with down the line. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael Wall. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Let's get started by having you give a brief professional introduction. Thank you, Alexis. I am working in Foley's Boston office as a member of the Transactions Practice Group. But my primary focus is on the sports and entertainment group. I joined Foley in 2017 after having worked uh, as a general counsel for 22 years with a, in the sports industry. And before that, I was in private practice for a few law firms in Boston for about seven years. I've uh, spent about uh, 12 years and counting working in the law firm environment and 22 years as a general counsel. So that that adds up to 34 years. So I guess you could say I'm a gray beard. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, we're going to unpack a lot of that. But before we even get to the legal practice part, let's start at the beginning or somewhat at the beginning, which is where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Lynn, Massachusetts, which is uh, just north of Boston. I don't know if you've heard of Lynn, Lynn, City of Sin. I grew up, I was the youngest of uh, four. My dad was a surgeon, but he uh, died of a heart attack when I was 10 years old. So my mom was left to raise the, the four of us. have lived in Massachusetts my entire life until 2021 when my wife and I moved to uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Can I get a little snapshot? I know you mentioned you're one of four. Actually, I'm curious about birth order, siblings, you know, boys, girls, and just kind of what, what life was like when you were, let's say, middle schoolish, like what were you into? Sorry, big question. Basically, I'm saying, say more. Yeah, well, my brother was five years older than than me. My two sisters were seven years and 15 years older than me. So I was probably the, the baby of the family. I guess I was a typical kid north of Boston. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, baseball was king. Uh, so I played a lot of baseball and and hockey became extremely popular when Bob Ewer and the Big Bad Bruins were winning uh, Stanley Cups in the early 70s. But, it, you know, I guess my interest was always in sports. I was Boston sports fan ever since I was a little kid. And it's obviously been more rewarding the last 20 years being a Boston sports fan than it was uh, growing up. But I guess that's been pretty consistent for me. Well, and it's always important to me that I ask this question because before we dig into the, you know, aspects, highlights, at least of the 34 years of practice, we have to talk about that. You probably weren't a kid walking around knowing he wanted to one day work in a law firm or be general counsel. It helps us establish that lawyers are just normal people too, who ended up, (laughs) who ended up becoming attorneys. I'm curious for you, as you made that transition, let's say into mid high school, into college, did you have a sense of, I want to be a, a lawyer? Or how did you even decide what you were going to do for college and where did you go? Well, I went to, in high school, I went to St. John's Prep in Danvers. And at, you know, throughout my high school, I was, and, and before that, I was always pretty good at English, had a love for, for history, not as attracted to science and terrible at math, which continues to this day. And my father was a surgeon and, you know, he obviously had an interest in science and my wife and our two children are both in the science field. My son studied microbiology and immunology and my daughter is uh, studying to be a physician's assistant. So I think the science interest skipped a generation. I was about to say, it clearly skipped a generation because all your interests just sound like somebody who's going to maybe go to law school. (laughs) My interests were always in history and politics and government, and those were all complementary to being a lawyer. But um, went to high school and the student body, you know, 200 kids in my class, and we all tended to apply to the same schools. You know, back then you applied to four or five schools and all of my classmates applied to the same schools, four or five schools. And I applied to you know, a couple of Ivy League schools and Holy Cross in BC, which was what everyone else did as well. Happily, I went to Holy Cross because I met my wife on the first day there and we've been together ever since. But yeah, I mean, I continued to, when I was at Holy Cross, I continued to be interested in English and history primarily. And then when I graduated, I decided to work at the Suffolk County District Attorney's Office, worked as an investigator in the Organized Crime Division. And that gave me, you know, kind of a purview into what it was like to be a lawyer. And what that taught me was I did want to go to law school, but I knew I didn't want to be a litigator. Interesting. I'm following along on LinkedIn. So I see that 
at Holy Cross, your degree was in English. So bachelor's in English. You take a year off enough to figure out, I want to go to law school, but I don't want to be a litigator. Can I ask what it was that, because for a lot of people, they still maybe would have said, I knew I didn't want to do something criminal or what was it for you? Well, it wasn't so even so much that year as when I actually did go to law school after that year, I continued to work in the DA's office in the Boston Municipal Court. So I sat in on a lot of trials and I also worked in the Boston City Councilor's office, but, you know, and he was a litigator. So I I got, I saw a lot of litigators at work and with all due respect to what they do, it, it just seemed a lot of delays and motion work and paper pushing. But that's where you use the English degree. That's where you can write stuff. <laughs> right, right, right. But, you know, being a corporate lawyer, I, I guess I push paper too. But I just found the process to be paralyzing, I guess you would say. So I, I was more interested in uh, doing business law. Well, as a former litigator, I love this because I tell students, and there's obviously exceptions to this, but I think a lot of people actually have kind of a natural orientation one way or the other, either to litigation or transactional. And, you know, there's other things out there as well, maybe, you know, restructuring or intellectual property, whatever it is. But it's great to hear there was a strong, you know, disinterest or interest in a given practice area because you're proving my hypothesis, which may or may not, may or may not be correct, but that's the theory according to Alexis. So where did you go to law school and how did you figure out that process? Well, I went to Boston College Law School and there wasn't a lot of deliberation involved. I mean, it's a great law school. And uh, I knew I wanted to practice in Boston. So if you want to practice in Boston, you go to Harvard or BC or BU, at least back then, or Suffolk. So it was one of those schools. And um, I have to say that I didn't enjoy the law school experience as much as I would end up liking practicing law. I mean, I really like practicing law, but the law school environment was not as compelling to me. Which, by the way, is important that you said that. We almost should pause on that for a moment because there's students who that's going to make them feel optimistic. If perhaps law school isn't really resonating with them right now, knowing that the practice of law is not the same as law school. And I think for some people that can be maybe they, they like the academic nature of the law. But I actually think for a lot of people, it's I preferred practice. And I don't practice anymore, but I preferred practice over reading cases and taking exams and and all of that. That's worth highlighting. Yeah. And actually, I recently started teaching at Boston University School of Law. I'm teaching a sports law seminar there this spring, and I've never taught before. But, you know, I'm trying to focus less on the substantive law in the seminar and more on what it's like to actually be, be a practicing attorney, because I think it's important for law students to be as much exposed to that as they can be while they're in law school, because they're about to jump into a completely different environment. I'm not sure I'm making the law interesting for my students. I'm trying, but trying to migrate away from the substantive focus and more on the practical. Well, and before we move forward, a question I always have to ask all of our lawyers was, or is, how was the adjustment to law school for you? And I realized, you know, it was, it was some time ago, but academically, was it challenging? Was it easy? What did you think of that? You know, I didn't find it terribly challenging. I got a great education in high school, which prepared me very much for Holy Cross. And then I got a great education in Holy Cross, which prepared me for law school. You know, in the first year, law school is it's a very challenging experience for everyone. But, it, you know, it's a lot of memorization and it's a lot of different way of thinking. But uh, I can't say that I found it overwhelming. I guess if 
the real challenge for students is if they're working and going to night school, I can't imagine doing that. And some of our, when I get some of our IP lawyers on who are engineers, it's a different side of their brain. And I think maybe being an English major and then having to do voluminous reading is a little bit better if you've been, you know, some people who've been just learning a very different way until they walk into law school, it can get really, really hard to make that adjustment. Yeah. Well, there's so many different backgrounds that people come to law school with too. I mean, And that's another thing. If people listen to the enough of this show, not that they need to listen to all the episodes, but they listen to more than one. That's the thing. You'll hear people bring all sorts of experiences to law school. I was similar to you. I was more of a traditional pre-law major, but I often think it can be beneficial longer term if you were doing something else before you attended law school. But okay, I, I'm going to move forward a bit, but I always I'm obligated to ask that, particularly of our more senior lawyers, just to let the students know it gets better. There's life. <laughs> There's life after law school. But I see from your bio that after law school, you practice for maybe about six or seven years in law firms. I'd love to touch on that just just briefly, because I, I know you didn't join them as a litigator. So how did you navigate those first few jobs and what was your practice focus? When I graduated from BC Law in 1988, the economy was in recession and it was a very, it wasn't a good market to be looking for a legal job. There weren't many positions available. And I didn't have a job uh, lined up after I graduated. So what I ended up doing was going door to door to Boston law firms with my resume in my hand and uh, just trying to get past the receptionist to speak to anyone who could talk about opportunities that these law firms might have and faced a lot of rejection. It was a humbling experience. But one day I, I went, I stopped by the office of uh, Hinkley Allen. It was called Hinkley Allen Snyder and Coleman back then, but now it's Hinkley Allen Snyder. And, uh, you know, I didn't get past the receptionist, but as I was getting on the elevator, the office manager got on at the same time. And she said, I heard you're looking for a position. You might want to talk to Paul Gorin, who's uh in charge of our corporate department. He might be looking for someone. So I did that and I got a, got a job and joined a very small corporate department. It was basically the corporate department uh, serviced the legal needs of the litigation clients of the firm. So I did a lot of corporate work, did a little bit of real estate, a little bit of this and that. So I really developed a practice as a corporate generalist. This partner that I worked mostly with, Paul Gorin, worked for decades as outside general counsel to New Balance. And now he is general counsel for New Balance. He's been in that position for, I don't know, 10 or 20 years. But I did a lot of work for New Balance at that time. And after being there for about four years, he and three other partners, including one of the name partners, decided they were going to leave the firm. And they asked me and two other associates if we would join them. And um, I said, sure. You know, these were the, you know, my the partner I was working mostly with, I was leaving, I was going to follow them. Didn't know where, where they were going, but um, it ended up that uh, we went to Goodwin, uh, Goodwin Proctor. So I went from a medium-sized firm to a very large firm with 100-plus corporate attorneys, uh, much different environment. It was great, but I was really kind of a rare bird because I was a corporate generalist and I wasn't niched into any specific specialty. So I was there for about six and a half years when I got the opportunity with the garden and the, and the Bruins. All right. And we're going to talk about that. I do just want to pause back to what you said about you went door to door. I just want to pause on that for one moment because that's one that's amazing that you did that. And I know today things would be a little bit different, but you know, there's a lot of students who listen 
they don't know where they're going to, you know, where their first job is going to be. And I would just say for them, the equivalent of doing that now are things like LinkedIn or showing up at events and meeting people. And there's definitely a way to translate that like kind of hustle or grit that you showed into now because it still applies. And also we're about to launch, we're going to soon talk about what I think are some really neat roles you have held. And I think people have a tendency to assume that you just skated your way straight through to become GC of something. No, there was a point where you were going... (laughs) door to door to get your first legal job. <laughs> so even back then I knew that just sending out the the resume wasn't going to do it. And my best chance was to just try to strike it lucky and just try to make a personal connection somewhere, even if it was with the, you know, the receptionist. And I carried a box of resumes with me and just went door to door over several days and was able to do it with one. And and you're right, this is just like LinkedIn. And, you know, I found strangely enough that when I went from working in-house back to private practice with Foley back in 2017, I used LinkedIn a lot. And what I found out was it's those soft connections that are the most valuable. You know, you reach out to some people who you think are going to be a great help to you. Yeah, they've known you for a decade. You expect they'll call in some favors. And they really, you know, no disrespect to them, but you just weren't that helpful. But it's these people, that these complete strangers you reach out to. They're the ones who who might make connections for you. That's exactly right. Actually, the episode, I believe before this one, I'm taking the audio from a professional development talk that I did a couple of years ago and just putting into a podcast. So oddly, I guess I'm plugging for myself talking about networking, but really getting into this and how to build relationships and create those soft connections, which is a whole nother discussion, but it's a nice segue. So listener, dear listener, check that out if you haven't, if you could use that, that insight. And I will just add about the going to events. When I was with the Bruins, I used to do a lot of panels on sports team, sports panels. And people would come up afterwards and introduce themselves and just strike up a conversation. And and one of those people I ended up hiring, you know, years down the road when I was at Bauer and I needed somebody, a junior attorney. I just remembered running into this person at an event. Right. You just add some time behind it. And also, so now you've said some buzzwords I think people are curious about. You've talked about the Boston Bruins. You've talked about Bauer. So how did you go from being an associate at Goodwin to the Boston Bruins? How does that happen? Well, Goodwin had uh, Delaware North companies as a client, and Delaware North is one of the largest privately held companies in the world. And they, Sports Service is one of their major uh, subsidiaries. They're one of the most prominent concessionaires in stadiums and arenas in the United States. They have another business line that is concessions at airports. So Logan Airport in Boston is a Delaware North account. They also have this, uh, an affiliate that manages uh, national parks like Yosemite and Kennedy Space Center. But what they, with Boston, they own the TD Garden and the Jacobs family owns the Boston Bruins. So when I was at Goodwin in 1995, I got a call one day from a litigation partner who said his client, the Boston Garden, had called and said that the vice president and general counsel for the Garden and the Bruins had suddenly resigned and they needed someone to fill in the spot until they found a replacement. And they asked me if, if I would do it. I you know, it took about a nanosecond to think about it and said, yes, I would. So I, you know, went down the street and started working there. And at this time, the old Boston Garden was in its last year of operation. And the Bruins were in the midst of, midst of an NHL lockout. And the building, you know, then known as the Fleet Center, now the TD Garden was in its last stages of construction. So it was, it was really pretty much bedlam there. And, uh, you know, I had to start working with the management team for the building 
and for the Bruins and for the construction project team and didn't know anyone, but just tried to keep a level head, keep track of things and just did the best job I could. And it paid off because they offered me the job uh, after a couple of months. So I, you know, I was there for 13 years. It was um, fun to go to work every day. It was always something different going on and there were always some big meaty projects to work on. So it was basically being in the right place at the right time, but also having the right background, being a corporate generalist allowed me to just jump in and do a lot of different things. And corporate generalist, I just realized maybe we should define that for those who aren't as sure. We've, we've used terms like litigation and transactional. But so I hear that as meaning you did knew, did and knew how to do a wide range of because transactional or business related things. If you had to summarize that for the law student who's not quite sure what even fits under that bucket. What does that mean? Yeah, I guess it would be a business lawyer who has had experience doing a lot of different things. And that includes, you know, moving into different areas like real estate and intellectual property, having some exposure to, I wouldn't say patents because that's a completely different specialty, but having some exposure to trademark law and copyright law and real estate law doing, being able to do a lease. Now that's not to say you you know, don't need a real estate attorney to do leases from time to time, but at least you know how to do it. You know how to ask the right questions. And in essence, being able to work comfortably with contracts and drafting contracts and negotiating and interpreting contracts and being able to translate that to a wide variety of subject matter. Yeah, and a variety of settings. And did you do a lot of buying and selling of things at all? Was that in there as well? I mean, I did that as a transactional attorney at Hinckley and, and at Goodwin, but not so much when I was at the Garden and the Bruins. That was really more operating a major facility and the largest bar room in the city of Boston. Which I'm sure has some stories. I don't know if we'll be able to go into them, but I'm sure some things have come up in that context. But the major contractual work that I did at the the Garden and the Bruins was the relationship with the Celtics. The Celtics were just a tenant of the building, but they had a, a lease, which is extremely complex. The Bruins were also a tenant of the building, but they were an affiliated party. So I, you know, I represented the Bruins and the building, which presented conflicts from time to time. And the Bruins also had a partner, were partners in the Red Sox uh, in Nesson, New England Sports Network, which is a cable network. So there were a lot of very complex contractual relationships that I had to deal with when I was there. I really appreciate you explaining that. There's a couple of things I want to ask. One, at the Bruins, were you essentially, did they have any other lawyers while you were there? Did their legal team grow during your time? Or was, it sounds like initially, at least you were probably doing a lot of their primary legal work. Yeah, I represented the building, the Bruins, and Sports Service, which was a concessionaire for the building. And these were all affiliated entities, but they were somewhat competitive, you know, because they had different lines of business. The arena owner operated the building, and the, the Bruins were tenants of the building, and they bought donuts and other food and beverages from Sports Service for their you know press conferences. So they had contractual relationships. And, you know, occasionally those relationships conflicted with each other. And I kind of had to arbitrate the disputes between them and be, you know, judge, jury and executioner, you know, try to resolve any disputes that existed because otherwise they would be resolved in Buffalo by the parent company. Nobody wanted it to go that course. So I had to kind of build confidence in the management team for each of them and that I was impartial and would just give the decision I thought was right. 
I really don't want to just skate through 13 years with the Boston Bruins. That's a substantial amount of time, but I know there's there's roles after that. And you mentioned one of them was TD Garden. So that is the building. So I, yeah, to get back to your, your earlier question, I was the only lawyer in-house for these three entities. And Delaware North had a legal department in Buffalo that serviced the other entities, but I was the only attorney on the ground. I should apologize because I'm probably driving the listener crazy right now. And that clearly these things happen concurrently. I just asked you the question as if they were consecutively. But so that those were all things that were concurrent and you were considered the chief legal officer to both of those at the same time. And it was after that role or those role that role that you went to Bauer. That's correct. Yes. Got it. Okay. So sorry. Pardon me, dear listener, if I've confused you, but we will keep, we'll keep moving. And you can now circle back to the, if you even remember the question that you were in the midst of answering, but I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was the only attorney and, you know, that is unusual today because the sports industry has become more complicated and these sports and entertainment companies, most uh, professional sports teams own the facility in which they play their home games. So that means they own both the building and the team. And the complexity and the contract volume with these companies has become such that you can't have just one attorney doing everything. So now they've evolved into a professional. These companies will have business lawyers focusing on the arena or the stadium and an attorney or two focusing on the sports team. So for the Bruins, it would be the business ops and then the hockey ops. And that hockey ops attorney might be a capologist who works you know, exclusively with the general manager for the Bruins. And then the business lawyer will focus mostly on the arena. But back when I was doing it, it was just one attorney and I was spread pretty thin. It's really helpful context on how it's changed and developed. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out when the best time to ask this question is, but I guess I'll just ask it now because... I've run into a number of people over the years who they're, I want to be a sports and entertainment lawyer. And I do think part of that, and we've had a few other, you know, your colleagues from the sports and entertainment practice group at Foley, Andy Lee and John Israel talk about this, but I do think there's, you need to have some background experience. So we've talked about how you had the corporate generalist skills, you're comfortable with contracts, but to me, there's almost a little bit of what do you mean? When you say, I want to do sports and entertainment law, what does that mean? And I think you've just given an example of it's it's more so about the industry. You're still doing the, I'm reviewing contracts, I'm reviewing leases, I'm looking at XYZ agreement, but it's within the context of you know, this particular facility or this particular sports team. So clearly there's some specialized you know, industry knowledge, but just your thoughts on that for the person who says, I want to do sports law. If you're talking about the professional sports franchise, you can either represent the team, the owner, or you can represent the players. So you're either on the management side of the equation, which is predominantly what you know John and Andy and I have done in the sports and entertainment group. That's our background. Or you can represent players as a player agent. But when you're representing the club and the arena, which you typically are, or the league, you're doing contracts. When I was at the Garden and the Bruins, I would say 85% of what I did was negotiate contracts, develop contract templates, draft them, negotiate them, interpret them, ignore them, enforce them. And then there were the real estate issues that arose and tort issues and sometimes constitutional issues. And But it was basically contracts. And when you learn how to be become a really good contracts type lawyer, you can translate that to any industry. 
That's exactly right. And super helpful. I also think it brings it down to earth and makes it practical. You'd start, if this is something you're interested in, by getting good at contracts, learning contracts, knowing how that works. And by the way, as a former litigator, I would be there to fight about it after the contract went south. So I wasn't so much focused on, you know, is this a well-crafted contract? We would just fight because, you know, 10 years later, it turns out it wasn't. You know, we may return to that. I, I'm probably going to ask you some more advice for those interested in this practice area. But before we do, I mentioned Bauer hockey. So how does that happen? And I'm obligated to say I have a nine-year-old who plays hockey. And I've had to encounter more hockey equipment than I ever planned on encountering in my entire life. <laughs> so I have some sense of things, but I'm, I'm curious as to how you made that transition. Well, as I said, I was, uh, I was at with the Garden and the Bruins for 13 years, and I really loved going to work every day. But as I saw, there was always you know, a good meaty thing to work on, whether it was the Nesson relationship with the Red Sox or it was the renegotiation of the Celtics lease or drafting the naming rights deal for the building. We hosted the Democratic National Convention in 2004, which was a great experience. But towards the end of my time there around 2006, 2007, I realized that the next big thing was the development of the site of the old Boston Garden. And it didn't seem like that was going to happen anytime soon. And I just felt at that point in my career that I needed to uh, try something different because I've been doing this so long. I was afraid that I wasn't developing the other skills that I could as an attorney. So I started looking for another opportunity. And uh, fortunately, around 2008, I learned that um, Bauer, which had been owned by Nike since 1995, was had been acquired by private equity and they needed a general counsel. So I interviewed for the job and I had no consumer products law background. So it was just like, you know, when I jumped into the arena and professional sports franchise, I had no idea what I was doing. But I just had to learn it. And with Bauer, I had no consumer products background, but they figured, hey, you're the Bruins attorney. You know, we're hockey. So that's a good match, right? <laughs> you're hockey. We're ho let's do let's do hockey. Yeah, stuff. <laughs> so they offered me the job and I had nine great years there. And I learned so much. We did a lot of MA, you know, we acquired nine companies in my time there. We went public on the Toronto Stock Exchange and New York Stock Exchange. And a consumer products company is just fascinatingly complex, especially in the sports equipment category. And everything has to be functioning in sync. And it's very challenging to be the lawyer or the general counsel in that kind of environment. I loved going to Bauer, you know, to work every day. And we also, you know, we had Easton uh, Baseball as, as one of our companies and, and a lacrosse company too. So it was completely different from selling tickets to a captive audience. It was more intellectually very challenging, but I learned a lot and I loved it. And you absolutely, I think, grew the other side of your skill base. You were talking about legal skills and expanding them. I heard you mention the M&A part, going public part, which are, I think, also a part of that set of you know, just various things that corporate practitioners will do. Right. And I also had a team too. And intellectual property is, is extremely important to a sports equipment company. And that was essential. I could not say, I, I still haven't figured out patent law. You know, I have ultimate respect for patent attorneys because I talk to them every day. You know, I, I kind of evolved from being an operations lawyer representing Bauer and the other uh, entities into becoming a public company general counsel, which was just dealing with the board every day and getting the, you know, the filings ready and the talking outside counsel about that. So I evolved in that position as well. 
I have to admit, this is a tough conversation for me because there's so many things I could almost mine as a podcast <laughs> unto themselves. I think everything from that difference between you know being in-house versus being at a firm to being, like you said, a consumer goods company versus one that's not, also being a company that's public. You've touched on a number of things that I think are things that as attorneys progress through their careers, depending on what path they follow, you end up having to figure out. I remember years ago when I was still practicing, actually someone in-house telling me, and I was a litigator just through and through. If you ever go in-house, because at one time I thought I might, you know, you may, you could just pick up the M&A stuff. It's not that hard. <laughs> was, was their advice to me? And I don't say that to minimize what M&A attorneys do. I also think securities work, you know, everything that comes with being a public company to me sounds incredibly complex with the various filings and disclosures. But I think also you're showing depending on the opportunities you're providing in your career, there are times when you will have to figure these things out or rely on team members and other subject matter experts to get you through. What you learn is you don't have to know everything. You just have to know when to ask the right questions. Learn enough so that you can ask the questions and rely upon the subject matter as experts to fill you in. Because if you have the basic knowledge, you don't need to have the expertise. Just ask the right questions because then you're going to have to translate that to your executive team and to your CEO. And you have to you know, translate it from legalese to language that they understand. And you have to give it succinctly in an executive summary fashion. And you have to have skin in the game. You have to express your opinion and don't hedge. Which is absolutely something that I think it's a transition. Law students go through going to law firms. Lawyers at firms can go through and working with clients to make whatever you're saying, make it so humans can understand it. And not everything's a 12-page memo, you know, particularly in a house. I've never worked in a house, but talking to, you know, friends and colleagues who do or have, I need the answer. I need the three to five sentence. What should we do now? Not the 15-page memo. I'll never forget we were doing, uh, when I was at the garden at one point, we were doing a beauty contest with some law firms. And we were interviewing some labor firms. And, and the, the senior partner there started explaining something to our CEO and started dropping case citations. And it was like, oh my God, you just blew it. Nobody cares about citations. They don't care what the Supreme Court said. And you know, you can't be talking to you know the CEO and, and that kind of because they're busy and they don't need to know, they just need to know the answer. They don't need to know. Operationalize it. Can I do that or not? How the sausage was made. <laughs> Well, let's keep moving because we're getting closer to joining Foley, but I know after Bauer, you joined USA Team Handball. Say a couple of words about that. So I got a call in 2019 from a sports recruiter who I'd known for many years, Scott Carmichael. He was an NHL executive and he has a sports recruiting boutique. And he called me and he said, you know, I've been engaged by the USOPC to find a new president and chair for USA Team Handball, and I think you'd be a great fit. And I said, that's great. What is Team Handball, and why do you think I'd be a great fit? And he said, well, for, first of all, Google Handball, and you'll see what an exciting sport it is. And I encourage your listeners to do the same. It's an extremely popular sport in Europe. It's almost invisible in the United States, but it has many of the elements that are fundamental to very popular American sports. But it's an exciting game, but it's tiny in the United States, but it's an Olympic sport. And as an Olympic sport, we will be playing, we always play in the Olympics when the United States hosts the game. So we will be playing in LA in 2028. 
And the reason why he thought I'd be a good fit is because in the wake of the uh, Nasser scandal with USA Gymnastics, the USOPC has been urging the national governing bodies of the sports. This is track and field, gymnastics, swimming, hockey, USA team handball, to put on their boards and um, populate their committees with people who are less tied to the sport, who are truly independent, because you know, m- many of these NGBs got in trouble because they had too many endemic members of the sports, you know, on their boards and they would look the other way and just didn't discipline themselves and govern themselves in the way they should. So the USOPC was looking for more, preferably sports industry professionals who could get in, into these organizations and clean them up from a governance standpoint and compliance standpoint. Because in the wake of that stand- scandal, these NGBs have much you know, more rigorous compliance obligations. So I was asked to be chair of the board and, you know, we've made a lot of progress in the last, you know, three years, streamlining our board, getting committees in place where they weren't before and um, uh, relying upon the CEO to do what he can to grow the sport. I'm pleased to say that at the world championships in Stockholm last month, the United States competitively performed greater, better than it ever had in the world championships, winning its first game ever, and then going on to winning a second game at the world championships. Well, that's fantastic. And also, I'm just going slightly out of order with your career here because it was really Bauer to Foley, and then you've been in this role with the USA Team Handball, essentially, in the last many years that you've also been been at Foley. So I hope people aren't too upset with me as I, as I make your make things a little bit less than linear, just to make it a challenge. I'm not going to try to fix this in post-production. So everyone can just try to follow along. But actually prior to getting that fantastic opportunity to get involved with US Team Handball and to help figure all of that out, you transitioned to Foley after Bauer. And so what was it that made you interested to come back to the law firm side or should I say precipitated, you come into the law firm side of things. And then we'll talk a little bit about your practice here at Foley. Well, what precipitated it was bankruptcy. That'll do it. <laughs> the company of, the, of Bauer and Easton Baseball and these, these lacrosse companies. It's a long story. It's a tortured story. It's a great business law, a business uh, school and law school uh, case study. But the company filed for bankruptcy and ended up being sold to its largest shareholder. So it went from being a public entity to a private entity. It was not really a a bankruptcy caused by financial distress, uh, although there was some of that. And the company has been doing great. I was basically the last officer to shut off the lights uh, on old co and decided not to continue on with new co. And so I was at that point in 2017 where I could either try to find another general counsel position. I wanted to stay in the greater Boston area because my daughter was uh, still in high school, so I didn't want to uh, move on or return to a law school, uh, law school, <laughs> return to a law firm. And I thought if I could find a law firm that had a good sports and entertainment group, I could you know, try to plug into that platform and grow business because I had no book of business, but I had many contacts. And um, fully was looking for someone of my background at the time. It was a great match, and it's continued to be a great match. John Israel and Kevin Schultz, Andy Lee, Bobby Sharma, Bob Dupay, they've all been great to work with, you know, and Christina Wallace-Cooper, she keeps us in line. We talk every week. We share ideas, you know, business development, and we just all work together, and it's a great team. We're going to talk a little bit more about what you do day-to-day in terms of being a member of that practice, but I also just have to share the observation for the law students 
I think in hearing about the various places you've worked in your career, some of the moves, you had perfect timing, you got a phone call, other things happen where, you know, business things occur and changes have to be made. And I think another theme of this show is a fair amount of this is in your control, but aspects of your career are not that, you know, you see attorneys have to pivot because Congress signed a law and either a practice group was or practice was no longer exists anymore, or maybe it was just created. But I think understanding that there really is this long arc to your career, particularly if you know, you're fortunate enough to be a lawyer for 30, 40 years, because I think it's so easy to be like, I just need to find the perfect thing right now. And I'm going to do that forever and never have to adapt or change. And it becomes very clear that that is not the case. So I just had to highlight that. I think that overarching message. But so right now, Michael, what do clients call you for? What do you do day to day in your practice? Well, you know, when I joined Foley in 2017, I had a two-pronged business plan approach, and that was to go back and kind of tap into my sports and entertainment venue and professional sports franchise background and develop clients in that area. And also to tap into the, you know, the consumer products slash sports equipment category. It's been much more fruitful in the, in the sports and entertainment category than in the sports equipment category. I was fortunate in that virtually my first week at joining the firm, one of the firm's clients, Fidelity National Title, which is David Cook's client, the chair of Fidelity is Bill Foley. Bill Foley had just been granted an expansion franchise in the NHL, the Vegas Golden Knights, and they were just about to start on their their season. This was July 2017, and they were going to play their first game in October. And they didn't have in-house counsel, and they you know, just needed some advice and uh, their lease and their obligations under their lease and um, just needed some basic, you know, they didn't have any contract templates for what they were about to undergo. So I immediately started working with them and they eventually hired in-house counsel and I had a great relationship with her and continued with the new general counsel. But that was able to tap into my my Bruins and garden background to get right into sports and entertainment type work. And I've continued doing that with various professional sports franchises were clients of the firm and with uh, entertainment venues that are coming online and either have in-house counsel who aren't experienced in the area or who just are overwhelmed and just need some help with their volume. I am joining, we're launching the consumer product segment of the manufacturing sector with Eric Swanholt and, and some others. And we're trying to focus on the consumer product sector so I can tap into my background in, in that space as well. I just really appreciate hearing about the the different areas of focus. And I actually wasn't aware. I nodded, as you said, the manufacturing sector aspect. I didn't realize we were launching that, but it's, it's a great compliment to the experience that you bring in that respect. And I'm just trying to put myself in the place of that law student who, once again, I want to be a sports and entertainment lawyer. So, Michael, what's your advice? I'm going to split this up because as we start to wind down the show, I want to ask your advice to that person, general advice. And I'm also in a few minutes going to ask you your just general thoughts and advice to that aspiring lawyer, but for that person who who wants to do what you do, or I want to be a general counsel of something in the sports industry one day, what do I do? If you want to become an in-house lawyer in any area, whether sports or not sports, you typically need some law firm experience because these many in-house departments don't have the luxury of being able to train people right out of law school. So you usually have to get three to five years law firm experience before you become attractive to become in-house counsel for any in any area. For sports, it's all about, you know, I give informational interviews quite a bit to 
students, law students who want to get into sports. And I tell them that you have to network, you have to be geographically flexible and be willing to go anywhere. And don't be afraid to take any job that gets your foot in the door, because if you're smart and you're diligent and you work hard, once you get your foot in the door, you can work your way up. Even if it's in a non-legal position, you can work your way up into a legal position because I've seen it over and over again. You know, it, it helps if you work for a law firm that has professional sports or venues as clients uh, or even sports sponsors. As Perhaps clients. a law firm like Foley and Lardner. Exactly, like Foley and Lardner, who <laughs> that you can get to do that type of work and impress the client because they may end up offering you a job. Yeah, I don't know what your impressions of this are. So I grew up in the Wisconsin area and have known of Foley for much of my life. And for whatever reason, I think I've had awareness of Foley's relationship with Major League Baseball. But I don't know if, you know, particularly in law school, because who's aware of what law firms do in law school? But I think to some extent, people maybe aren't as aware of the depth and breadth of our sports and entertainment expertise. I don't know if you have that impression at all, but that's why it's so fantastic to have you on and have you know, your colleagues on to talk about it because, yeah, it's it's just neat because it's exciting. But we really do bring to bear, I think, a wide array of expertise within that particular industry. Yeah, we do. And especially in Major League Baseball, you know, with Bob Dupay, former president and chief operating officer of Major League Baseball, that was a great relationship. In representing the leagues, you know, the Proskauers of the world and the Covingtons of the world kind of have the leagues locked up as clients. But we at Foley, we have a great opportunity to help out individual professional sports teams, entertainment venues, investors who want to acquire or sell a team or build a facility. You know, and we have the in-house, former in-house legal expertise with John and Andy and, and others and Kevin Schultz with, you know, so many years experience doing these M&A deals with professional stakeholders in the professional sports industry. I think it's a pretty rare group that we have that can cover that, all of those stakeholders and whatever their interest might be. So as we do start to wind down, my two last substantive questions for you are one, is there something that you've wanted to touch on or highlight that we haven't gotten the opportunity to? And then after that, it's back to that. What's your overarching advice to that law student or junior lawyer? I don't think there's anything that I missed. I do want to stress that as a business lawyer, again, whether you're at a small, medium, or large firm, you need to get as much experience drafting contracts as you possibly can. When I was starting out, the partner would throw at me a you know, 100-page waste-to-energy co-facility partnership agreement, and I had to pick it apart and make it concise and, and learn how to use defined terms. And you really need to you know, earn your stripes drafting uh, contracts. And just from personal experience, as we touched upon earlier, that face-to-face interaction is priceless. You really need to do that if you want to break into any industry. And if you have taken, if you're in a practice that you that you don't find stimulating and you want to try to find something else, you should explore it and go out and meet people and get as much information as you can. And just don't be afraid to just get that experience if you can get it. That's great advice because it turns out that a lot of attorneys who've been, you know, say practicing as long as you have, Michael, they like their practice. They actually like what they're doing. And I think sometimes as law students, they think if it feels like an academic exercise, they can just put 30 years behind it. But no, it turns out that if you can actually calibrate and find something you enjoy, that it will have longevity and you'll do, you'll be a lot better at it. 
Right. And I, I guess there was one thing that I didn't get to touch upon. And having worked 12 years outside counsel, 22 years in-house, I have, I've had pretty good experience in seeing how lawyers interact on both sides of the equation. And outside counsel can learn a lot about how they should interact with general counsel. If you've been outside counsel for many years, sometimes you don't have an appreciation for the pressures and the concerns of a general counsel and what they have to deal with and how to best deliver advice to them. And I've seen great outside counsel providers and really lousy outside counsel providers being in-house. So it's something that firms should really focus upon, I think. Well, we are winding down. And unfortunately for the listeners, we did not circle back to hear about any antics while you were at the TD Garden and the Bruins with the running the largest bar in Boston. (laughs) So I apologize if I've disappointed anybody with that, not getting back to that. But I will just say, Michael, I so appreciate your time and and talking to you today. And last final question, if somebody wants to reach out with questions or comments, can they feel free to find you on Foley.com and send you an email? Absolutely. Happy to talk to anyone. Thank you so much, Michael. Okay. Thanks, Alexis. Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship. Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley & Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice. 